Welcome to episode 34 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we are continuing in our Dissecting Fictional Properties series. Last week we started with Star Wars. This week we'll be going to The Empire Strikes Back. Which is my favorite in the original trilogy. Mine too. Um, yeah, it's funny because I think I think it's actually most people's favorite movie, aside from the handful of y'all out there who like Return of the Jedi best, which I don't understand. Um, but yes, I think Empire is probably everyone's favorite. And do you think you know why? Do I think I know why? I think I think it's the best written of the three and I think it has I think it has a little bit of everything that makes the movies so great. There's some great humor, there's obviously this is kind of where the romance between Han and Leia really takes off. There's lots of adventure. This is our introduction to Yoda. I just feel like there's just so much in this one movie that is iconic about the franchise as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really well written. I I agree. I think this is the best written of the bunch. It's also the darkest. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know. Let's start with a, a pretty brief synopsis of The Empire Strikes Back. So, uh, if you want me, I can do that. Yep. Okay. So, we finished the end of the first Star Wars movie, and everyone had... They've destroyed the first Death Star. Everybody is celebrating. But um, the Empire is not completely defeated, obviously. So, this movie is set an indeterminate amount of time later. The opening scrawl says that the rebels have retreated to the ice planet of Hoth, Um, And Darth Vader is now obsessed with finding Luke Skywalker and is sending probes all throughout the galaxy to find him. Um, So the movie opens with them on Hoth. Um, Han and Luke and Leia are, um, you know, doing their rebel base operations, whatever those day-to-day operations may be. It looks like they're patrolling this and that. And Luke gets uh, attacked by an ice monster thing. I don't know if this creature actually has an actual name, but he's basically the abominable snowman. Luke gets uh, attacked by this abominable snowman um, and then escapes the abominable snowman's lair in the middle of a heavy, heavy set blizzard. Um, and he's severely injured. And um, in, in the middle of this blizzard, while he's, you know, slowly dying from his injuries, Luke receives a vision of Obi-Wan, his mentor, who had died, as we mentioned last time, died in the previous movie. And this vision of Obi-Wan tells Luke, you must go to the Dagobah system to seek out Yoda, who was the Jedi Master who taught me. Meanwhile, at the Rebel base, Han is like, I gotta leave, there's a bounty on my head, and if I don't pay that bounty, then they're gonna kill me. Um, and 
But Leia's not too happy about this. She mm-hmm. uh, tries to hide it, but is pretty much like, no, I think you should stay. You're good for the rebellion, yada, yada, yada. And then word comes back that Luke hasn't returned. So then Han goes out to find Luke. Um, goes out, rescues Luke. They get rescued the following morning. And um, all those probes that Darth Vader had been sending out, one crash lands on Hoth, and uh, they discover it. And now the location of the rebel base has been given away, so now they have to prepare for an attack from the Empire. So this is really kind of the first act of the book, not the book, first act of the movie, where... The Empire has discovered them on their rebel base, and they have to escape. So we have this kind of protracted ice battle, um, and unlike the first movie, they are not victorious. This is a retreat. They have lost this battle, and so now they must get on their ships and escape. Um, So at this point, Luke decides to go off to find this mysterious Yoda, and... Han and Leia didn't manage to escape with the rest rest of the rebels, so it's just Han flying Leia out on the Millennium Falcon, and they are trying to avoid the what's the name of that the Starfleet. <laughs> I was like, what is the name of the Empire? <laughs> they are trying to outrun the Empire themselves, and um, they kind of this long middle section with the two of them is sort of pointless, I guess, in many ways. Um, they are, like, it's just them going to the asteroid field and trying to escape the Empire. Um, once they get out of the asteroid field and they're caught again by the Empire, and then they decide, he, Han decides, because their hyperdrive Uh function is broken. I should mention that, too. So they can't jump into hyperspace to escape the way the rest of the Rebels had. So, you know, they're kind of, hiding and running from the Empire and Han decides, oh hey we're pretty close to the Bespin system and I can stop and see my old buddy Lando and he can probably help us out. Uh, meanwhile Luke has got, Luke has found Yoda and after uh, kind of a rocky start uh, Yoda agrees to teach him and then we have this long extended training sequence in the swamps of Dagobah where Luke is learning to extend his force powers and we learn a little bit more about what the Jedi can and can't do. Jedi powers apparently include things like moving, as we mentioned before, moving things with your mind and seeing into the future. (laughs) Sensing things that happen around you, uh, not just physically, but like emotionally. Um, So meanwhile, back on Cloud City, Han and Leia meet up with Lando Calrissian, who, who is kind of wonderful. I really love him. Um, who ends up betraying Han and mm-hmm. Leia to the Empire. Um, Lando is running this little operation, and he's under a lot of pressure, yada yada. But basically, he's he was Han's friend, betrays Han to the Empire. Um, meanwhile, Luke is training, and he has this vision of his friends in pain and in danger, and tells Yoda, I have to leave, I have to go rescue them. And Yoda and Obi-Wan's angry force ghost shows up and says, no, Luke, you are not ready. Um, You're going to have to face Darth Vader, and 
you're, you failed a couple of the tests that we've laid out for you. You're simply just not ready and you're running into danger and it's a trap. Luke, of course, being, um, who he is, <laughs> is like, no, I have to go rescue my friends. I promise I won't fail. Um, and so he leaves and Obi-Wan says, that boy was our last hope. And Yoda says, no, there is another. Um, so Luke goes to the cloud, to Cloud City, to Bespin, to rescue his friends. Um, meanwhile, Han has been encased in carbonite because Darth Vader wanted to test this freezing mechanism because he wants to freeze Luke into it and bring bring Luke to the Empire or Emperor. Um, Han's been frozen in carbonite and given to a bounty hunter to return to Jabba the Hunt. So that whole bounty thing that was on top of Han's head comes back around now at the end. Um, Luke shows up, does not find his friends, ends up running into Darth Vader, and they have this long lightsaber duel, which Luke, being unready, loses. Um, and then Darth Vader is like, no, I've been looking for you this whole time because um, together we can rule the Empire, we can defeat the Emperor. Luke's like, why on earth would I join you? And it, Darth Vader's like, I'm your dad. <laughs> Psych. Surprise! Psych! Um, Luke, of course, is very upset. Decides to basically throw himself off this thing to get himself off of Darth Vader's clutches. He is kind of dangling and hanging on for dear life and uh, calls out with the Force to Leia, who overhears him. And she was initially going after to chase Han, to rescue Han, but she hears Luke and goes back and rescues Luke. Um, and then the movie sort of ends on this sort of ominous note where the heroes have lost. One of their member is, you know, been sold to a bounty hunter and has been, been encased in carbonite. And so the movie just kind of ends with them trying to regroup and figure out what their next plan of action is. So this is chapter two, clearly chapter two, Unlike Star Wars, which was kind of a self-contained narrative, this definitely is chapter two of a, of a bigger story. So mm -hmm. that's the basic gist. Now, going on to why we think this one is better written than the previous one. Is there anything specific about it that you think makes it better written? Um... What is it that makes it better written? Because we did talk about the first one. When we talked about Star Wars, we did say that, you know, the dialogue was pretty good and that it was pretty well written. Um, so it's not that the first one was bad by any stretch of the imagination, but this one just seems a little bit more sophisticated. I think the story is a little bit more complex. I think that there's... A lot of great character development in here. The other thing, too, is part of when you're talking about the beginning of a story in that first movie, that first movie has to do a lot of work just to set us up with all these characters, set us up with this world, set us up with the main goals of each of our characters. You know, there's a lot of introductory things that need to happen. But in this second installment, we already have all of that. And so we really have the space to explore these characters, explore some of their weaknesses, explore 
you know, some more nuanced things about them and have more intricate plots. And I think that the writing itself is, is just a little bit tighter. Yeah, I, I definitely thought that the dialogue was snappier in this mm-hmm. installment, um, which we can get into a little bit more detail later. But what I think makes this particular installment really good for me is because the stakes have not just been upped personally, because it's personal now. The big villain we saw in the first movie is now personally looking for Luke, our mm-hmm. protagonist. Um, so not only do the stakes get heightened, they also get slightly more complicated because the, so basically the, the journey Luke had in the first episode was to kind of grow into himself, right? To gain confidence in in himself and, and in the force. And in this one, he starts to explore the force a little bit more and starts to delve into the more complicated moral questions about the Force. You know, this is the first time we actually explicitly hear that there is a dark side and a light side. Mm-hmm. Um, and Luke comes across his limitations. So, in the first movie, you know, he's this sort of bright-eyed, idealistic young man. In the second movie, he is his idealism and nobility has a dark side as well, which is that it also is somewhat selfish Uh because even though Yoda tells him, you're not ready to face Darth Vader, you are walking into a trap and all that your friends have suffered for will be for nothing. If you leave now, Luke just can't hear that. He can't step outside himself to see the bigger picture. So all those good traits about Luke in the first movie, I've started to get deeper and more complicated and he starts to make bad decisions that come from a good place, but are ultimately bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the case of, of Han, who in the first movie, he's this, you know, out for himself cynic, um, who doesn't really believe in a cause and his transformation at the end of that movie is to actually come back. He's been paid, he can pay off his bounty, but decides instead at the very last minute to come in and, and join the, the rebel cause and ends up saving Luke. So this movie opens and the good decision that he made, the, the good decision that he made in the first movie for good moral reasons has now come to bite him. Mm-hmm. basically. And the consequences of that is what happens to Han by the end of that movie. So like everyone's, so in addition for, to this being chapter two, it's really a continuation of everyone's story from chapter one. And it's made more complicated. Um, you see that it, Han should be selfish. He should leave and he should pay off his bounty, but he can't, he won't because he's, in his own way, you know, loyal to maybe not the cause necessarily, but to the people he loves. So he keeps staying and, you know, it didn't end up too well for him. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. Um, I don't know if Leia actually has much of a trajectory in this movie. I guess aside from 
opening up, letting herself be more emotionally vulnerable mm-hmm. than she was in the first movie. Yeah, I would say that, you know, her arc in this one is is more interior or emotional. I, yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't say that she necessarily has her own her own plot, you know, in the first one, she had a very clear, you know, very clear goals, find Obi-Wan, you know, get help. Um, and then in the following movie, she has a very clear narrative, but in this one, it is a little bit more, um, non-existent. (laughs) Yeah. Her plot in this one is really the romantic plot. Mm -hmm. Um, which is thoroughly enjoyable for me. It is. I don't mind it. You know, I, I think that... Uh, not that I don't mind the romance. I love the romance. But I, I don't mind that she doesn't have something else to do at this point. Um, because I think that we're still always shown how how capable she is. She's not, she isn't just reduced to this romantic plot because she doesn't have anything else going on. You know, she is staying there when, during this, you know, rebel battle that they're losing, you know, she's one of the very last people in there still trying to hang on and command things and basically only leaves when Han essentially drags her away. And it's like, you know, we have to go. We can't stay here. Um, so, She's she's not just reduced to the romantic damsel batting her eyelids in the corner, which I appreciate. Yeah, I mean, Han doesn't necessarily have a story, necessarily. He has an arc, but mm. the majority of this plot, for him, he spends two-thirds of the movie fleeing from somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. with some interludes in the middle. Um, and both, I would argue that both he and Leia have much more of a big setup at the end of this movie. Um, because the end of this movie, Leia has finally let, allowed herself to be vulnerable and to admit that she loves Han only to have him taken away from her. Mm-hmm. Um, also that revelation that she is force sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so this kind of sets up kind of a big thing for her. Um, and Han, of course, his good deed and, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. And right. it catches up to Han by the end of this one. So, and just as a movie, it's really tight. I never felt like the pacing lagged. There was always something happening that kept the tension going. You know, every time our heroes score a minor victory then some other complication comes along and they have to find a way around that. So the sort of complications and obstacles, there's never a part where there's a, a really a lull. I guess you could argue that the sections where Luke is training with Yoda are a little bit slower and a little bit more boring, but I didn't find them so because I you, you learned a bit more about the Force mm-hmm. in those sections. Um and it doesn't feel quite so exposition dumpy because Luke is learning them along with the audience. So it's not like some guys right. like, as you know, Bob, this is what the force is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just picture those old, like, do you remember the old Disney cartoons starring Goofy where there would just be the narrator, like how to fly an airplane? Yes. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> 
couple of new characters in this in this installment. We have mm-hmm. Yoda and we have Lando. So what do you think about them? I love Lando. Um, I do too. <laughs> I love him. I think he it who he is makes perfect sense to me. You know, he is essentially a friend slash <laughs> enemy slash, you know, a fellow rogue. Uh, of Han and so he behaves exactly as you would suspect you know in another universe Lando could be Han and Han could be Lando you know Mm -hmm. like they could have that completely switched and I could see Han you know being just as opportunist in that moment if he weren't emotionally involved in the situation Um, so I really love him I thought he was great I really you know, I like that he betrays them. You know, he, he says that the Empire showed up before you did and, you know, I have to look out for myself. And so I did what I had to do. But he's clearly uncomfortable with what's happening. You know, he's not um, he's not at all comfortable with what Vader is doing. And he tries to do his best to make amends and to sort of help them out, of course, you know, that help is only worth so much. Um, but I, I really like him. I think he's funny. I think he's kind of charming. You know, he's constantly flirting with Leia, who is, of course, not remotely interested, but he's very smooth. I love his, he's got these big dramatic capes. I know, love his capes, too. <laughs> it's so <laughs> fitting with his personality that this guy would be wearing a swish cape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really, I really like him a lot. Um and Yoda, I don't know. I feel like it's so hard for me to try to talk about Yoda in terms of like the actual text because, again, I just knew so much about Yoda just from pop culture and so many things are exaggerated and distorted. And so it's hard for me to cut away all of that and just truly focus on what we get in the text. But this is kind of our classic mentor you know, he he starts out and he, Luke doesn't realize that this is Yoda, and so Yoda kind of trolls him a little bit, and we just think he's just this kooky old creature who lives in the swamp, and um, don't really give him any respect or attention until, of course, it is revealed that he is, in fact, the Jedi Master. I... I don't know that I have... An emotional connection to Yoda. Hmm. I don't know. I, I, of course, I can't remember my first real impression of Yoda. Mm-hmm. I'm fond of Yoda in these movies because of exactly the archetype that we had discussed earlier. He is that, he, you know, the sort of classic fairy tales and myths where the powerful wizard mm-hmm. disguises him or herself as you know, this wizened old person or this crone or some helpless thing or, like, a frog or whatever and tricks the hero, you know, is kind of a test of character for the hero. You know, if if the hero passes, then the hero becomes worthy to teach. And, of course, Luke fails. <laughs> um, and... I, 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 I really... I don't know. I think there's something about... And, again, this is... We're, this is a visual aspect of the character, not necessarily the character as text, but there's something very endearing about the puppet Yoda. 
who is this, you know, tiny little creature and he is the most powerful Jedi in the in the universe. I mean, mm-hmm. before all the Jedi were wiped out, but just he was he's the most powerful and I think it works because you had kind of the kindly encouraging mentor figure of Obi-Wan. Mm-hmm. But Yoda doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um Yoda is a little bit trickier, I think, too. He kind of goes about things sideways and sort of sets, not exactly traps, mm-hmm. but tests for Luke. Yeah. <laughs> Luke often doesn't pass. No. Mm-mm. I also like that by his sheer physicality, I mean, he's so old and he's so small that it, I think it says a lot about the Force, that the Force does really have this spiritual and mental component, that it's not just about physical strength, that there's a lot more to it than that. And I think that his presence um, really helps to hammer that home, you know, mm-hmm. because we've seen Obi-Wan, who was older, but, you know, who was a tall man who you know seemed physically capable and luke of course um and so having a character who doesn't who doesn't seem like he would be a physical threat and yet have him be a formidable opponent i think helps highlight those other aspects of the force that are important mm-hmm. i also think he's funny yeah i think you funny Especially when you first meet him, he's just this like, hey, 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 he's this kind of kooky old guy. <laughs> but what I like about that first appearance of Yoda, too, you know, and of course, everyone talks when when people like talking Yoda speak, you know, he has that uh, slightly inverted sentence structure. But you can tell with him that's also kind of an act as well, that he puts it on because, you know, he's you know, talking to Luke and he's being this kooky old guy. Luke is very impatient. When do we get to meet Yoda? When, you know, because Yoda hasn't revealed himself yet. And he's like, when do we get to meet him? Do this and do that. And you can just see Yoda finally lose his patience and just say, I cannot teach this one. (laughs) Um, And then you can see the expression on Luke's face, like, oh, (laughs) whoops. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and so a lot of that is is a bit of an act, that kind of funny sentence structure and that, um, you also, this is going to sound a little bit weird, but you can kind of tell that English isn't Yoda's first language in a way. Uh So, but Uh that also makes what he says much more interesting and it's imparted to you in a much more interesting way. Uh Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm fond of Yoda and it's, interesting that the sections in Dagobah are as interesting as they are or as compelling as they are to me because it's just Luke and Yoda training in the swamp. Yeah. There's no actual action in the middle, in the second act of this movie. Yeah. Um, there's actually not a lot of action going on in Han and Leia's storyline either and this is the middle of the movie and you would think that there's a sagging middle you know, because we talk about in books and stories that there's a sagging middle, things get boring, blah, blah, blah. But I would argue that this movie does not sag in the middle because the stakes keep getting higher and more complicated. 
even if not a lot of action is happening. Happening. So in the Luke storyline, it's him struggling with his inadequacy and his impatience um, to become a good Jedi and kind of take all these shortcuts, and that complicates the stakes. And in Han and Leia's storyline, it's the romance there that's starting to complicate the stakes. So, uh-huh. let's talk about romance then. <laughs> um, I love love it. They I ship them pretty hard. I think. What makes what makes it work for you? What makes what about this romance works for you? Hmm. What about this romance works for me? Well, of course, a very strong undercurrent in this romance is the bigger, bigger kiss, kiss, which is just a dynamic that I love. Um, Han and Leia spend a lot of their time insulting one another and, uh, you know, bickering and kind of bantering back and forth. But there is an undercurrent of respect there. Mm -hmm. And there is, you know, because I think that you have to be really careful with that kind of trope because in some senses it just doesn't work. Like you've said repeatedly that, uh, Ron Weasley doesn't work for you because you feel like that respect is missing from Mm -hmm. his character. And I feel like Han and Leia have that respect. Um, and that the disdain that they have, or that the disdain that she has for him, really, and he's just kind of, um, you know, mad about it or whatever. I just, I just think they're adorable. Um, they have a great chemistry, and it really works for me. And I, I like the, I like Leia kind of realizing that she has feelings for him or allowing herself to admit it because he is very early on in the beginning of this movie is like, you don't want me to leave and you, you know, can't admit it. And he is, he's afraid I would leave without giving you a goodbye kiss. Yeah. Just kiss a Wookiee. I could arrange that. You could use a good kiss. It's just, it's great. You know, he seems much more aware of that underlying sexual tension than she does, or at least he's willing to admit to it and she's not in the beginning. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just really well done. The chemistry between the two of them is just great. They make me laugh. You know, Mm -hmm. I think they're really, um, lovely. And some of my favorite moments with them too happen in the next movie. So I won't get ahead of myself and, you know, talk about those before they're, before they've arrived, but, um, I just, I just love it. I think they're funny and sexy and I just love watching them on the screen. Yeah. The thing you said about respect, the reason, like I said, bigger, bigger kiss, kiss is a trope when it works, really works for me. But when it doesn't, it really misses for me. This one really works for me because outside the only time they really bicker is in the context of their romantic feelings for each other. Mm-hmm. Because when necessary, when necessary, they work really well together. They're professional. They, you know, they put aside whatever feelings are between them, romantic or otherwise, and work through the problems that they have together. 
And I think it's pretty clear that Leia's disdain for for Han is not actually disdain for Han. Mm -hmm. It's a defense mechanism that she's unable to let her guard down in that way for whatever reason it is. You know, she's afraid of getting her feelings hurt or she doesn't... I don't think Leia would be the kind of person who's like, I'm a princess and blah, blah, blah. I don't Mm -hmm. think the status thing matters to her. I think it's just she's afraid to let her guard down. Um, Because the... So he tells their his commanding officer in the very beginning of the movie general i have to leave um and you can kind of this is a movie of course but they're exchanging looks han and leia keep exchanging looks like yeah she keeps he, looking over her shoulder she keeps at him. looking at him she keeps looking at him and he kind of keeps glimpsing at her and they have this kind of hilarious scene where he comes up to her and he's like so guess this is goodbye and she's like that's right and he's like don't get all mushy on me so long princess (laughs) and then he just leaves and then there's like a beat later and you can see Leia comes and runs after him and she's like you can't leave we need you and you can clearly tell this this is really an excuse yeah because Han's commanding officer is like you know you're a good soldier we'll be we'll be sad to lose you but he lets Han go and he's like okay you have to do you do your do your thing man you do what you need to do Leia on the other hand is like mm-hmm. clearly scrambling for some reason to to talk to him to delay him leaving and and Han calls her out on it too he you know and she's she's like we yeah you know yes you're a good soldier we need you and he's like we need well what about i need and she's like, I need, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, and, and so he, he pretty much calls her out on the feelings that she won't admit to. Um, and this whole dynamic plays out really well because you know that Leia has feelings for Han, but she won't admit to it. And Han knows that Leia has feelings for Han. And so he just continually, I think, good naturedly ribs her about it. Like he doesn't actually get petty. And that's kind of what I disliked about, like, you compare this relationship to Ron and Hermione from Harry Potter, a lot of their bickering was petty. Just Uh petty sniping at each other um, that I did not like. And anytime, you know, anytime Han and Leia bicker about their feelings for each other and they have their bantery arguments, it's always about their romantic feelings and not about their core qualities as a person. And I think that Uh works. Because anytime Han gets presumptuous about, you know, her feelings for him, she has to take him down a peg. Um, anytime she gets all high-minded about her feelings for him, he has to take her down a peg. But it's not he has to take her as a hold down or that uh-huh. she's belittling of Han as a human being. So because of that, I think it works for me. Um, and they don't take their insults personally, which is another thing that works for me. There's that hilarious scene kind of in the beginning where she's like, you scruffy looking nerf herder. <laughs> and Han just goes, who's scruffy looking? <laughs> he doesn't take it seriously. Um, you know, there's a scene and also kind of towards the beginning where Leia gives Luke a kiss, a romantic kiss, clearly to like kind of, she's like, well, I'm not interested in you. I'm interested in Luke and but Han doesn't get ruffled by that. You know, he doesn't get jealous. You know, he just is like, whatever. You know, she's just lying to herself. It's fine. Um, yeah, so much, so much about this romance works. 
really, really well for me in that regard. Mm-hmm. And they also have this amazing kiss scene that I think is kind of great. <laughs> <laughs> that first one? Um, in the, yeah, in the Millennium Falcon where she's trying mm-hmm. to fix something and, and Hong comes in and, you know, he pretty much corners her and um, they have this kind of, like, almost like old Hollywood style, like, seduction scene. Yeah. Um, and this kind of hilarious, and she's like, oh, I think you're, you know, I don't like you. I think you're a scoundrel. And he's like, scoundrel. Um, yeah, she's like, I like, I like nice men. He's like, I can be nice. No, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) And so they have this kiss, which I also like too, that, you know, you can see that it's clear, even though he initiates the kiss, it's, she responds like Mm -hmm. she's, you know finally allowed herself to, to open up and feel for Han and then and then C-3PO comes in mm-hmm. and cock blocks them and it's amazing <laughs> mm-hmm. and she like bolts she's like I am out of here because <laughs> I don't want to have to face what we just did so I'm going out um so yeah and then of course we get to Cloud City they've at, at this point in the movie they've pretty much acknowledged that they're not bickering about their feelings anymore anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they get to Cloud City and they have much bigger problems than their their feelings for each other to deal with, most, namely Vader, who is setting a trap for their friend Luke. Um, and of course then we have the scene in right before Han gets frozen in carbonite where she f- they have their kind of farewell kiss because you don't know if Han is going to survive this process. Um and she kind of can't contain herself and says at last, I love you. To which Han responds, I know. And it is kind of the best response mm-hmm. ever. Of course, it's famous. You know, it's a right. famous oh, quote. Yeah. And uh, wasn't it an ad lib from Harrison Ford? Yes. The original line was apparently supposed to be, I love you too. Which, I mean, it... it it's not necessarily out of character for Han, but his response of I know is much more in character for Han. Um, and because in many ways, if he were to say I love you too back, it would be almost too final for him. And so Han is like, nope, I'm just going to say I know, you know, mm-hmm. and deal with it that way. And it's not like she doesn't know he loves her. She knows he loves her. It's just that she has finally opened herself enough to say I love you to him. So I loved it, I thought. It was a really wonderful, wonderful mm-hmm. romance. I ship it pretty hard. <laughs> um, so that's the romance. We talked a little bit about the structure and the characterization uh, and the dialogue. Mm-hmm. I like the dialogue. I thought... Of course, a lot of it revolves around Han and Leia and their kind of screwball, comedy-esque banter Uh back and forth. Um, But a lot of what Yoda says I also think is really, really great when he's talking about the philosophy of the Force, you know, and he says, judge me by my size, do you? You know, I'm, you know, and and Luke's like, of course not, you're an extremely powerful Jedi, despite how tiny you are, and... Yoda kind of goes into the philosophy of the Force, 
and you know he's like luminous beings are we not this crude matter and he's sort of talking about going beyond yourself and and everything that I, I thought was just really excellently done because you can and we will get very clunky explanations for the force in the prequels um so I, I thought the dialogue was well done and um, I try not to go into this too much because I don't necessarily think that an author or filmmaker's intent is necessarily important. Uh-huh. I think a filmmaker or author's intent can certainly inform your reading of a piece, but the piece should stand on its own. Uh-huh. Um but what I liked about this is that the director really just focused... The director is actually not George Lucas for this one. It's Irvin Kirshner. Um, but he, Irvin Kirshner really focused on the characters. And he said that. He said, you know, I didn't care about the action. I cared about the characters. And he and George Lucas actually had an argument about this. Um, so he... Irvin Kirshner and George Lucas knew each other from George Lucas's film days. He was actually George Lucas's teacher, and Lucas had such a difficult time directing the first Star Wars movie, he was just too exhausted on top of that. He was trying to build up Lucasfilm as a company on his own, so he decided to outsource directing the movie to somebody he knew and trusted, and in that case, that was Irvin Kirshner, his old teacher. He disagreed with his teacher because George Lucas says said audiences go to movies for spectacle and Irvin Kirshner disagreed Irvin said no audiences will go see the movie a movie because they care about the characters and what happens to them and because of this I think that's why Empire is the strongest because the person directing the story has an innate idea, you know, that stakes come from character, and he focuses so heavily on these three and developing them and developing their journey that we care, and then we care about what happens to them. So it was really interesting because I listened to, to it for the for the with the commentary on, um, and for Irvin Kirshner. The material was darker, but he didn't want to make it a really bleak and doer movie. So he tried to leaven the mood with uh, humor sprinkled in and out, uh, mostly in the form of C-3PO. And a little bit of humor from R2-D2 as well. So, oh, I guess we didn't really touch on the, the one big thing in this movie that everybody remembers it for, which is Luke's final confrontation with Darth Vader. And the revelation that Darth Vader is his father. Does that revelation work for you? Do you mean, are you asking about, like, the fact of it or the execution of it? Both, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know. I mean, there was never a time when I didn't know that Vader was Luke's father. So I I, I knew from the beginning. So it's like I never had that experience of, you know, that shock, because from what I gather, it must have been, you know, an epic shock at the time when not even the actor playing Vader knew. Really? (laughs) 
the only person who knew, because he said some entirely different lines on set. Right, because he's not the voice. James Earl Jones is the voice. And James Earl Jones actually thought that the script he got was a joke. So they were all completely surprised by it. But does it work for you? Because when we think about the narrative of Luke and his father, the first movie we find out, you know, Luke is being raised by his aunt and uncle. Mm -hmm. His father is clearly out of the picture somehow. And he's told by Obi-Wan that his father is dead. That Darth Vader killed Anakin Skywalker. Mm -hmm. Which is true in a metaphorical sense, I guess. Yeah, I mean, all that stuff, no, doesn't work for me. I hate that. I've, <laughs> I've talked about, if anybody ends up listening to our other podcast about Avatar The Last Airbender, you can hear me go on a rant about how one of the things that I hate the most is when people just deliberately withhold information from someone because they think they know what's best for the other person. And the only reason to withhold that information from Luke is that people think that it's better that he doesn't know for whatever reason. And... They repeatedly, I mean, obviously he's been lied to his whole life and then we see characters continually lie to him about it through the course of the movie. And so that really, I hate that. I, I just think there's no, there's no reason for it. It feels so false. It feels like you're only doing it so that you can have the twist Later, And I don't know whether or not this was planned, that Vader was going to be Luke's father, or if it's something that they just decided to do later. So it could be that in movie one, they really did think of them as two separate characters, and they were only decided to combine them later. In which case, what are you going to do? The first movie is already out in the world. We'll make it work. Um, but yeah, it's not my favorite thing in terms of the way that is handled. I did notice in watching it that the line is not, Luke, I am your father. It's just, no, I'm your father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the execution of it, I guess, it, it is actually true. He wasn't initially Luke's dad. He okay. was just a big bad guy. Um, there are a couple of interesting things that I found out from the commentary First of all, this proves to me that George Lucas doesn't have a plan, that he's also a pantser. But the whole Anakin thing, particularly when it comes to Yoda, um, I can kind of see why Obi-Wan doesn't tell Luke at first, because he wants to preserve this young boy's, uh, I guess, idealism, and, you know, he doesn't want to taint the kid's journey in learning about the force with the, this bombshell that your dad is essentially the most, um, is a dark practitioner of this thing. And, um, so I can kind of see it from that point of view. I find it interesting that Yoda doesn't actually really straight up lie to Luke so much as he kind of just omits certain things. Um, I find that kind of interesting. And you start to see the hints of it are laid a little bit more deeply in this movie, that mm -hmm. there's a personal connection between Vader and Luke. Um, obviously, because of the the movie just starts out with Vader is obsessed with finding the young Skywalker, and then there's this extended sequence in this in the cave on Dagobah where 
Luke is like, I feel kind of cold, and it's emanating from this, like, weird cave underground, and Yoda's like, uh, you have to go in there and face whatever it is, and Luke brings his lightsaber and, like, his weapons, and Yoda says, you know, your weapons, you will not need them, um, and Luke ignores, again, Luke fails a lot in this movie, <laughs> Luke ignores Yoda's advice and takes the weapons with him. And and Yoda pretty much says, you know, Luke asks, what will I encounter in there? And Yoda says, only what you bring with you. So Luke is bringing in with, in with him a whole bunch of fear and aggression. So in this cave, he comes across a vision of Darth Vader advancing. And so he fights this vision of Darth Vader, beheads Darth Vader. And when the head rolls to his feet and the mask falls away, it's his own face staring back at him. So you can kind of have this metaphorical thing where the he it works on multiple levels like he's afraid of becoming his own worst self, he's afraid of turning to the dark side, and it could also be the sort of movie subtly cluing you in that there is a connection between these two characters. So the movie I don't know. I I don't like that they hid that information from him. I mean, Luke at the very end is like, "Ben, why didn't you tell me?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, that's actually a pretty good question. <laughs> why didn't maybe maybe Obi-Wan always intended to tell him and just never had the time. Who knows. But yeah, but thematically, what do you think of that twist? Um I mean, I think that it raises the stakes significantly for the final movement of the story. And so, in that sense, I think it's a good twist. I like I like the idea of it, you know, that this this dark um evil force is, you know, related to our hero and and it lends a lot more weight to the idea that Luke hasn't finished his training and that he's not ready and that you know that there is a dark side of the force and it's so easy to succumb to because now we can directly parallel Darth Vader alongside Luke I mean we were going to do that anyway but now that we know that they're related there's so much more meaning in that parallel and so in that sense, I think it works really well. Because if Vader wasn't Luke's father, then, you know, the the movement of the next part of the story could still be the same. All the plot points could essentially be the same. The Empire could still want him for whatever purposes. And, you know, all of that would still happen. But the the added layer of knowing that Luke is Vader's son adds a new tension between the two of them where their characters are going to interact differently because of that knowledge and where the temptation that Luke experiences, if any, will have more weight to it because he's not necessarily just being tempted by the dark side of the force. He's being tempted by his father and that familial connection that he never knew, you know? So I think in terms of, of that, um, it, it's a good thing because it does 
significantly ramp up the tension and the stakes in the story. Yeah, because otherwise you would just have Luke being special because he can wield the Force. Mm-hmm. And that is certainly a reason the Empire would could want him. But adding the familial connection between Vader and Luke does, you know, it, it strengthens Luke's narrative, but I would also argue it strengthens Vader's narrative. Mm-hmm. Because in the first movie, he's just this dude in a mask and he's scary and he you know uses the force but in a in a dark way and in this movie that reveal retroactively adds depth to that character um and his motivations start to kind of become much more interesting and it does set up uh the confrontation in the next movie in which you know they do explicitly parallel Luke and his father Luke's, you know, looking at Vader is his possible future if he succumbs to the dark side. But Vader looking at Luke sees a potential past where he could have been good. So it's kind of, it's much more emotionally resonant because of the reveal. So, um, but yeah, I think that's pretty much what I've got to say on Empire. This is my favorite as a kid Mm -hmm. it was my favorite because of the romance um but as an adult i think i enjoy it because of its nuance and storytelling as well Mm -hmm. so any last thoughts on the movie no i think we covered it all right so we can move on to our next segments so what have you been reading what have i been reading i finished the scorpion rules which is what i had started the last time that we talked and i moved on to another erin bow book called sorrows not Mm -hmm. so i'm reading that right now i'm about halfway through and then i also got and spent many 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 hours pouring over the hamilton book the hamiltome (laughs) for the musical which was excellent and wonderful and highly enjoyable. I cried in the Hamilton. Mm-hmm. I don't think mm-hmm. there's a single form of this musical that hasn't made me cry. Yeah. It was actually the moment in this script for It's Quiet Uptown. Oh, don't. Don't say it. <laughs> and it's when Eliza says It's Quiet Uptown mm-hmm. and the stage direction is just Hamilton shatters. And I was like, oh. God, and I like, yeah, broke. I just like sob my my eyes out, and everybody's like, "Are you okay?" And I was like, "No." <laughs> um, but yeah. So, you reading anything else? No, just those two things. What about you? Yeah, nothing new for me either. I am still working through my enormous biography of uh, Beethoven. Mm-hmm. I've read, and of course I'm reading, actually, I'm reading this on my iPad, and I'm looking at it, and it's 2,500 pages long. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 750 pages into this biography, but that's like only a quarter of his life. <laughs> so, this is going to be a long read, y'all. It's going to be like The Witches, which took me months upon months to read, because it was so long. So, that's... That might be all that you're hearing on this podcast for a while. What are you reading, JJ? I'm still on this biography, so. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, yeah. So, uh, what about and uh, what are we working on? I have not been working on anything creative at all since getting back from vacation. Just still trying to get back into the swing of real life. <laughs> so yeah, I haven't done anything. What about you? Still working on my book. I mean, I'm still kind of in the researchy phase, and I'm kind of mm-hmm. modifying slash tinkering with the material I already had before. Um, but really what I've mostly been doing is going to the gym. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm, I usually find that I think better once I've been exercising, that when the blood's flowing and everything, I just, things come to me while I'm walking or when I'm running or whatever it is. I'm not running because I hate to run. When I'm on the elliptical. <laughs> um, so there's that. I think there may be some avoidance on my part <laughs> to working on this book because it intimidates me. But then again, mm-hmm. I think I probably at that point in every book I've ever written that there's like a point where I'm just kind of procrastinating on starting the book. So... Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that's where I am, you know, researching, tinkering. Mm-hmm. So, any off-menu recommendations? Off-menu recommendations. What am I doing off-menu lately? Really nothing. I'm still obsessively watching Avatar The Last Airbender. <laughs> Um, Kelly got to a point kind of, in the in the show where <laughs> things things got real. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> stressful right now, and I can't watch ahead. So, yeah, unfortunately. Um, so that is always kind of the undercurrent of my life these days. We have been oh, I know what we've been watching. Um, the second season of the Netflix documentary Chef has come out, Mm. or Chef's Table, rather. Um, And it is a really beautiful documentary series that Netflix did, about an hour long, focused on a different chef um, from around the world. And they did six episodes in the first season, and now the second season is released in David and I have gone through, I think, four of the six. Um, In the first season, there was only one female chef and now this year there's at least two um I think there might be three but so I'm really excited about that and they're just really fascinating portrayals the the cinematography is gorgeous and it's all different types of cuisine and styles of cooking you know there's some that are the ultra fancy molecular gastronomy you know high 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 end um, type of food. And then there was one that focused on a man who spends his life traveling and doing, um, fire pits. You know, he digs these big pits in the sand and then cooks over coals buried in the sand for, you know, billionaires. Like that's the only (laughs) type of cooking that he does is he just travels the world and does these huge, um, pit fires and stuff. So there's a wide range from all different countries, um, all different types of food. It's so beautiful. And the stories are so 
interesting in these people's lives are just really fascinating. And so, um, we've been super into that. So I would recommend that to anybody. What about you? Uh, the Tony Awards. Oh, yes, obviously. Wow, what's wrong with me? <laughs> um, I I don't have cable, and I can't stream CBS, so I had to catch up on the Tony Awards the day afterwards. Um, it was great. It also introduced me to Bright Star, which is the musical uh-huh. by Steve Martin and Edie Brickell. And I got the album, and I actually really love it. I... I love, I mean, I like bluegrass and folk, um, mm-hmm. and this play in particular is set in North Carolina. It's, um, so there's kind of that local aspect for me. Um, but I, I really loved it. Um, and I also listened to Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, which is actually Philippa Sue's, I wouldn't Maybe it's one of her first professional credits, but she is actually on the original cast recording of this particular musical. It tells a portion of War and Peace, and it's a musical kind of focusing on Natasha and her seduction by Anatole. It's interesting as a musical. (laughs) (laughs) Like... Um, so Bright Star, I really like, and Bright Star is kind of a little bit more typical melodic musical, right? You know, and beautiful singing and playing and whatever. Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 is this interesting combination of opera, Russian folk music, and EDM. <laughs> One of these things is not <laughs> like the others. Yeah. So, I mean, it's actually it's actually pretty easy to listen to. You know, it's not like it's hard to listen to. I listened to it at work and um, was able to follow the story along pretty well. It's, it was just kind of, hmm. I, di- I didn't know what to think of it. Sometimes, you know, mashing genres can work. I would argue that it worked extremely well in Hamilton, I would say it also worked for me. It worked pretty well in Jesus Christ Superstar, um, and so there's no reason that sticking EDM or electronica into a musical shouldn't work. But I, I didn't know what to think about it. <laughs> it was kind of like, hmm. The end of the musical is really beautiful, though. But I think it's also because the end of the musical is stripped away all the orchestration, and it's just Natasha and Pierre singing over a very simple piano line. So, I don't know. I I recommend y'all check these out. If only, you know, just to listen to Philippa Sue sing on something else. Um, But yeah, it was interesting. I don't know. I don't don't know what what thoughts to form. What were your favorite Tony performances? I thought that The Color Purple was spectacular. Yeah, I agree. I had chills when those women sang. Mm -hmm. Um, so honestly, I think that was probably the best. Of course, it was wonderful to see all the Hamilton performances. I, I, I know why they picked Yorktown, but I wish they hadn't picked Yorktown as their 
performance piece. I understand why they did. Um, I wish they had done something that showed off the nominees a little bit better. Um, but it was great to see them um, do everything that they did. I really liked James Corden's opening number. I thought about, it was adorable. Like, the, the, homage to everything you know when he's singing to the like you know his past self and um I thought parts of it were really super clever especially he's singing about how he's always loved the theater and he had the realization one day that anyone could be in the theater and he could get up on stage and do this if that's what he wanted to do and so he starts singing about all the famous parts he can play he could be the phantom and phantom of the opera and he could be you know all these different things and as he goes on it gets more and more frenzied and kind of devolves into a gypsy rose moment at the end <laughs> where he's standing on the stage you know ranting but it's really clever and funny and at one point you know, he's he's standing and he's twirling around and he twirls and he puts on a red curly wig and he starts singing, tomorrow, tomorrow. And then he turns around again and takes it off and he starts going, tonight, tonight. <laughs> it was, it's just, it's so clever. And for people who love musical theater to be able to catch all the references in that opening number, I just thought was really highly enjoyable. So not necessarily a... Um, a performance by one of the shows. I do think the the color purple was probably um, my most favorite performance, just because I mean their voices destroyed me. It was so incredible. Yeah, I I like James Corden. I think I think he's adorable and charming, and I love his carpool karaoke mm-hmm. segments on his show. Yes, um, it, I do too. Just to say that carpool karaoke is actually what driving in a car with me is like. Mm-hmm. So, me too. <laughs> I, I just find... We need to take a road trip. I know, we need we to do. plan something in the next year. We do. We need, we need to take a road trip, definitely. But, um, yeah, I thought, it was, I thought it was lovely and sweet. Um, I really liked the performance of uh, Bitch of Living from Spring Awakening. Yes, that was excellent as well. Um, I really enjoyed some of the other ones, like Shuffle Along, like just to mm-hmm. see oh, yeah. Audra McDonald just like pregnant. I know, pregnant and, and dancing like that pregnant was crazy. Um, but yeah, I yeah I enjoyed the Tonys and that kind of got me on a musical theater binge again. So mm-hmm. that was that's my recommendation for this week. I think you can probably find clips of the performance online. Um, I know you can mm-hmm. actually buy the performance on like iTunes, Amazon, whatever. So, um, yeah, that's my off menu recommendation this week. Awesome. All right, that's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about the third movie in the original trilogy of Star Wars Return of the Jedi. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners to find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. 
You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S on Twitter, or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McClaude, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. about Luke's hand. Why were you so mad initially? I was so mad initially because it, it, I think I was on this string of like having read a lot of fiction and watched a lot of stuff where things would happen and then the consequences would be like immediately undone so that it didn't matter that this whole thing had happened. And so I think I was really primed to be like, Dude, you cut off his hand and then you got him a new hand five minutes later. Like, really? What is the freaking point of cutting his hand off? Like, I think I was really entrenched in that mentality of there being no consequences because I think I'd just gone through so many things lately that hadn't treated consequences as permanent or serious. Um, like, when I look at it from the world-building perspective, like, it, it wouldn't make sense necessarily if he didn't get a new hand <laughs> like you know true right in the future they've got advanced medical technologies so right but I just why wish, wouldn't you get a prosthetic yeah like I just I don't something about how like perfunctory it seemed or something I don't know I just wish it had been treated with more weight it's a little bit better in the next one because you see Luke sometimes like staring moodily at the prosthetic hand, like, contemplating who he is becoming and whatever, so, I mean... Yeah, there's much more twinning, because he, his hand gets shot, and you see the... <laughs> the interior... ...wiring underneath, so he wears a glove to disguise that, and, of course, who else wears gloves to cover his prosthetic body and scars but his own father, so... Mm-hmm. You've got kind of the twinning there, but... I remember reading that, and then I forgot to ask you, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs>